holding pocket. Welcome to another episode of the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. Hello again, rabbit holies. Hello, Kat. Hi, Kat. So we're back partially in real life, in three dimension, and partially in two dimension. So Richard, again, is travelling. I think we're getting a bit bored with Maybe I'm just I, jealous. Am I, I jealous? I, look, it is jealous making, because mm. he's playing to packed houses wherever he goes. And that is a bit sick making, frankly. Well, I've eaten a lot of kebabs in Wigan at midnight <laughs> and things like that, which yes. I like, but I'm not sure it would work for everybody. No, I think the midnight kebab is something to really give you indigestion, but it seems such a good idea at the time. Oh, so delicious. I think a doner kebab looks a bit like a skin graft, so I've never liked that. But a shish kebab, <laughs> I mean, it's grilled meat, it's a bit of salad, yes. it's some flatbread. It can't be bad for you, surely. So on your globe trot round England, doesn't make sense, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Have you eaten something that you hadn't eaten before that you thought was a particular delicacy that's now in your repertoire? In Salford, I had a Manchester tart, which is a sort of custard tart with a coconutty thing. It's a sort of like pudding that you would have considered a great treat in a time of privation, perhaps at the end of rationing <laughs> or something. But I have to say it was very good. Have you ever had Manchester tart? No. No, I don't like coconut on a tart, got to be honest. Those little flecks of white are always slightly off-putting. Yeah, I mean, it divides people because I do like a desiccate. I mean, I've been devastated by the news that they've withdrawn plain chocolate bounty from circulation because cocoa prices are so high that you can only get a milk chocolate bounty now, not a plain chocolate bounty. That's awful. You made your own. I made my own sort of bounty type bars. It's very nice. Do you? Much better. How do you do that? Just desiccate it? I mean, you just desiccate. mush up a coconut? Or what do you do? Yeah, obviously you can use coconut butter and desiccated coconut and mix that together with some sweetener, sugar or sweetener, and then dip it in dark chocolate and you can make really nice homemade ones. Keep them in the freezer. Kat, this nice is life-changing news. Can you send me wow. the recipe? Because I would like, absolutely make that sounds like the best thing I've heard for weeks. Yes, well, there we go. I'll find one and I'll send it to you and then also, you can experiment. Yeah, it's like Kendall Mint Cake. You could pop it in your rucksack, Richard, as you go around the country and use it as emergency supplies. Yes, there we go. Yeah, sounds lovely. I'm in. Excellent. I think I'm going to set your task as well, uh, Richard, of every new place you go to. You have to find us something and report back next time, seeing as you're, you're not there. And bring us things. You don't bring us anything. So next time we're here in person, you never you're going to bring write. us one you of your You never send flowers. It's, it's, gone, it's all yeah. gone a bit cold. You might regret. I had a super fan come to the show last night and she left me a present, which was put in my dressing room, which was a commemorative plate of the singer and actor Harry Styles. <laughs> That's lovely. It'll go with your set. Yeah, I think it could have been a lot worse than that, Richard. (laughs) Okay, let's go straight on to it, because I'm really looking forward to your topic this week, and you're going to start us out. We're talking about cursed families. 
Yes, cursed families. I mean, I normally invite you to step with me into a sort of place or period in history, but there are so many cursed families, it's hard to know where to begin. Let us perhaps go to North America. I mean, the Rockefellers, I suppose, are a famously cursed family. John D. Rockefeller started Standard Oil in 1870 and became the richest American who has ever lived, perhaps the richest man in the world in his time, obviously in relative terms. He lived to the ripe old age of 97, but unfortunately those who came after him bearing his illustrious name often didn't have a particularly happy time. Winifred Rockefeller in 1951 took her own life and the lives of her two daughters. Nelson Rockefeller, well, he was the vice president of the United States. He died in company with his assistant, a Miss Marshak, who was in her 20s in a hotel room. They were working late, if I can put it that way. John D. Rockefeller III in 1978 died in a car crash. In 2014, Richard Rockefeller died in a plane crash. So that's all awful. Perhaps the one that is most unfortunate was in 1961 when Michael Rockefeller, he was collecting indigenous art in Papua New Guinea and he was canoeing around and anyway, it's thought that he was actually eaten by cannibals and he disappeared and his body was never found, but we don't really know about that. But that is the fear, an unfortunate end for someone who's a Rockefeller. Of course, there are you know, other dynasties you particularly associate closer to home that are plagued with ill fortune. The Guinnesses, famously perhaps in these, this part of the world, family founded by Sir Arthur Guinness, uh, who started the brewery in the 18th century, mid-late 18th century, in Dublin. Uh, Sir Arthur Guinness had, I think, 21 children, and 11 of them died in infancy, really, which, as you'd think, would be bad enough. But then later Guinnesses, well into our own time, often came to sticky ends, and it was thought, because of the product they were famous for, that the black curse of the Guinnesses had struck. In 1944, Edward Guinness, Lord Moyne, he was then a representative of the British government in Cairo and he was returning to base where he was killed by two Zionist activists who disposed of him. Another famous Guinness who came a cropper was in 1966, Tara Brown, Patrick Brown, who was a Guinness relative, who was killed in a sports car. Yeah, it was a Lotus Elan, I think, and he crashed it into a van. He was a great figure in swinging London. And that's particularly notable because it inspired the Beatles song, A Day in the Life, which is all about the unfortunate loss of Tara Brown's life. There was Lady Henrietta Guinness, who in 1978, she was suffering from depression and had an extraordinarily difficult life. She ended her life by jumping off a bridge near Spoleto. There's a John Guinness, who had a car crash, which cost the life of his son. Lots and lots of Guinnesses, I'm afraid, came a cropper as a consequence of drug overdoses, high living, alcohol. There was a major Dennis Guinness, who was found dead after being questioned by the police in connection with something to do with firearms. It's all a bit mysterious. And there were some even some further outliers of the family. There was a John Guinness, who was a chairman of the Dublin Bank that bears the name, and he was um, kidnapped, and then eventually everything was restored. But then he died in a fall on Mount Snowdon just a couple of years later. Now, you may be wondering, why should so much trouble and affliction visit these families? And... Well, curse, of course, is a convenient way of explaining what had happened. You think of the Romanoffs, for example, or um, you think, of course, the Kennedys, no more ill-starred family than that. John F. Kennedy assassinated, Robert F. Kennedy assassinated, Teddy Kennedy involved in that notorious car crash at Chappaquiddick with the death of Mary Jo Capickney, and John Kennedy Jr. killed in a plane crash. 
Well, if you were to go to social historians, someone like Michael Shermer, for example, he coined a phrase in 2008 called patternicity, and it chimed with a psychiatrist called Klaus Conrad, who came up with the word apophenia, describing the same phenomenon, that we look for patterns, and that patterns, once we find them, or once we interpret coincidence as pattern, it starts to give us explanations that kind of feed some sort of atavistic desire of us to experience sinister forces at work, I suppose. Well, actually, I hadn't thought about this till you started talking, but I'm descended from a family on maternal side twice over. My family married twice into the Points family, P-O-Y-N-T-Z. And they took on some land from Henry VIII when he was selling church and monastic land cheap in Sussex. And as they were having a celebratory feast, the story goes that a monk walked in and cursed the family by fire and water in eternity. And it is extraordinary how many of them drowned or were burned. And in fact, in the 18th century, Mr. Points was holidaying in Brighton with his wife and children, and it was a perfect day by the seaside. And he said to his wife, I'm going to take the boys. If there's ever a day I can do it, I'm going to take the boys sailing on this perfect, calm day. And his wife had a hysterical fit, insisted on having her chair moved to the side of the sea, and watched as the three Points men went sailing. And as the newspapers reported at the time, a freak wave came out of nowhere and capsized the boat. And Mr. Points clung on to his sons for as long as possible, but had to let them go and they drowned. And that's one of many things. And I, I wonder if, if you're actively cursed, whether you somehow actually live up to the curse in a way. You bring it upon yourself. That's a very interesting question. One of the most sort of significant and interesting stories about it is about the Nepalese royal family, very unfortunate royal family, who, as you remember, there was a terrible massacre in the Nepalese royal palace in 2001 when King Birendra, who was a rather popular monarch, was murdered, they thought, by his eldest son, Dependral. It's never been entirely clear what, who machine gunned nine members of the royal family to death. Now, that reminded people of a notorious tale, which was the curse of Goraknath. Now, according to the legend, Prithvi Naran Shah, who was the founder of the Kingdom of Nepal, came across the guru, and um, the king offered some curd as a sort of gesture of politeness to the yogi, who then regurgitated it and asked the king to drink it. Why he did this, I don't know. Perhaps he thought it was some sort of sacramental favour. I'm not sure. But anyway, the king rejected the offering and was horrified by it and let it fall to the ground. And the curd dribbled onto his ten toes, and the yogi then cursed the royal, who said that his dynasty would be obliterated because of his pride after 10 generations. Now, when they worked it out, Nependra, who was accused of being responsible for it, was king for a little while, but he also suffered death as a consequence of that. And so he was, in fact, the 10th of that house to die, which fulfilled the prophecy. And as soon as that happened, people began seeing again this ancient curse beginning to work its way out in a present reality. So you get a lot of that, I think, Maybe it just explains the world to people in ways that excite us or thrill us. Do you think there's a bit of a bias here as well in some of these families? The families you talked about, they're very big, famous families who've got these quite extraordinary lives. I mean, you're talking about all the Kennedys being assassinated. I think, obviously, they're in a position where they're likely to meet and end like that much more than any sort of other normal family. And some of them who've got lots of problems, they might have lifestyles that put them at greater risk. So is there a risk that we are looking to those sort of families who are perhaps 
in any case, more likely to meet a, a sort of un, unfortunate like flying end. planes, private planes and skiing and all of well, these exactly. more dangerous pursuits. All of that sort of thing, mm. which is a lifestyle thing. So any sort of other normal family doesn't mm. necessarily have that. But because we see them and they're high profile, they're the ones you hear about. And there's a lot of them. If you think how many, you know, you're talking about two Irish Catholic families, the Guinnesses and the Kennedys, there's an awful lot of children, a lot of potential tragedy. Well, that's exactly right. One of the things that happens is that if you are a member of a royal dynasty, for example, you tend to get involved in situations where you might lose your life through revolution, for example, or through military attack. So that explains that, I think. And I think in our own times, of course, the wealthy and the privileged were able to enjoy lives, well, very full social lives, you might say. And so sports cars and alcohol and heroin and partying often don't particularly mix, which perhaps might explain the high rate of attrition in that. And as you say, if you're involved in American politics against the risk of assassination, is high. But my favourite curse is not it's not that sort of a curse at all, but it's the story of the monster of Glam's. Glam's Castle in the lowlands of Scotland, home of the Bowes Lion family, the Earls of Strathmore. Of course, famously the place, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, the mother of the late Queen, the double late Queen, if you see what I mean. She was of that family. And there was this famous story that there was a child born, Lord Glam's, an heir to the title and the estate, thought to be in the 1820s, although Sir Walter Scott was kind of spooked out by the place before then. This kind of romantic movement got underway. But it was thought that a son and heir was born, and to use the language of the time, so repulsive and hideously deformed, we would say, with physical disabilities, that he was considered to be unpresentable to the world. And so in Glam's Castle, which was built, obviously, as a fortification, there was a secret chamber, plenty of those, actually, in Scottish castles of that time, and so Lord Glams, which is traditionally the title that goes with the heir, was effectively kept as a prisoner in this secret room. And the secret of that was passed from father to son when the son was about to inherit the earldom. And this went on for a number of generations. Now, there were stories around that. There was a famous case of a workman, who I think it was 1865, was doing some work and found a door which led to a passageway which nobody knew about. He reported this to the factor, and the factor had him emigrated with a handsome purse of gold from the present earl to get him out the way. In the 1850s, there was a countess who, while her husband was out hunting, decided that it might be an idea to see if there really was a hidden room in the Castle of Glam's, was to put a handkerchief or a napkin or a towel or something in every window and then ride round the castle and see if any didn't have a blanket or a towel or something. And there was found to be some say one window, some say four windows. So obviously there was a room in the house, they thought they'd done every single one, which they hadn't managed to access. When the Earl got back from hunting, he was so dismayed with that he upbraided his wife fiercely and later divorced her. Obviously, it was an era of ghost stories. And so this idea of a cursed family with a sort of cursed, hideous monster, which they had to keep away from prying eyes, is of its time. It sounds like the plot of an opera, doesn't it, or something, or from myth. But it was said that when the 12th Earl was told the stories, vouchsafed the story when he came into his inheritance, he said it was so appalling that he didn't want anyone ever to know about it again. And his successor, the 13th Earl, refused to hear it. The factor who was responsible for looking after the monster, inverted commas, of Glam's, was so disturbed by it that he refused to sleep in the house. And one night, in heavy snowfall, it was impossible to get out, but he refused to sleep there, and he made a workman come and dig 
a trench a mile long through the snowdrift so the factor could get to his house. What's that all about? I don't know. And the story faded away. So if there ever was a germ of truth in it, perhaps there was, perhaps there wasn't, who knows. It sort of faded and no one really takes it very seriously anymore. What about the points, says Charles? Did they manage to shake off their curse? Well, there are people called points who have been in touch with me and, and they must be related. But in fact, the family myth that I've heard is we have a portrait of Mr. Points who lost his two boys in that freak capsizing. And he actually died at my house. He was staying and he'd had a bad fall in the park some years earlier and had been in pain. And he did this massive sneeze a few years later and dropped dead. And they reckon that what had happened was he'd actually broken his neck during the fall, but it had sort of held together by a small thread of bone. But the violence of the sneeze saw the end of him. So, yeah, I mean, there was another time actually, Richard, where one of the senior servants from the household was accompanying the young master on the grand tour, another subject we touched on previously, in Germany. And he drowned. The young master died drowning in Germany. And the servant bumped into a fellow servant at Calais, I believe, who was coming south to tell them that the house had burnt down. So that was fire and water as a curse. It's extraordinary, really, how often it happened. It's the art, if you curse someone, isn't it, is to make the term so general. It's a bit like being a medium, isn't it? You make the term so general (laughs) that the people go, oh, yes, of course, it explains it perfectly. Yes. Yes. Everyone in your family will die. And (laughs) quite a good one, it will happen. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much for that, Richard. I will go and, yeah, feel lucky that, as far as I know, nobody's cursed my family. My topic today is a Norwegian by the name of Tull Heyerdahl, which, if people haven't heard of him or recognised him, they might have recognised one of his biggest sort of feats. But he was somebody I grew up with as one of our national heroes. And in fact, one of my heroes when I was little, when I was about eight, I think my brother and I sent a letter to his museum asking for his autograph and got these signed postcards because he was presented. He's got a museum, the Contiki Museum in Oslo, uh, opposite Amundsen's museum and right down from the Viking ship. So it's one of these big Norwegian national heroes. And his most famous mission was that of the Contiki expedition. So if we go back to 1947, April 1947, and to Peru, this extraordinary event takes place on the 28th of April, where a group of six Scandinavians, five Norwegians and a Swede, climb onto a raft made of balsa wood. And it's got a little, it's got a tiny little hut and a huge big sail with an image of a a character called Contiki from Peruvian legends. And what they did was quite extraordinary. They decided to set sail all under the leadership of Turhayadal across the ocean to try and reach Polynesia from Peru. Because what Tur wanted to do is he wanted to prove that it was in fact possible to travel that big distance because people had told him you couldn't do it and it goes all the way back to trying to understand how Polynesia was settled. But anyway, so this was really quite an extraordinary thing to do. These six men had really nothing with them. They had just some basic supplies. The raft was extremely basic and they had no way of really moving it apart from the sail. They were going to be travelling on the currents, essentially, and the winds. And uh, remarkably, they survived. So all of them survived. 101 days later, they crashed into the Tuamotu Islands and 
essentially were able to show that this was possible. And at the time, it was a hugely popular story. They had a radio with them, so they would send updates across the world and it was in their papers. Tur Haidal eventually wrote a book about it, which has sold over 50 million copies about his journey. There was a documentary made. They also brought a, a video camera and there was a documentary that won an Oscar. So I grew up with this being this most incredible story. This is one of our big explorers and our big heroes. And only quite a lot later, quite recently, when I learned about him in studying archaeology, did I realise that there was a bit more of a dark backstory to this. And in fact, what he was trying to do wasn't exactly as positive as I'd learnt as a child. Because what really he wanted to do was to prove this theory about the settlement of Polynesia. So Heyerdahl was born in 1914 in a small town called Ludwig in Norway. He was very interested in zoology and geography, studied that at the University of Oslo, and he was an outdoors person. And at one point he met a friend who had married the daughter of a Polynesian chief. And when he got married, he decided to take his wife's leave to the Marquesas Islands in 1936 and live there, lived a sort of exceptional life on a remote island. It didn't go very well for them. They didn't really enjoy it very much. But he came back and he got really obsessed with this idea of where the Polynesians came from. Because at the time, in the sort of 30s and 40s, there was still a huge debate about that. Did the islands, these extremely remote islands, get settled from the west, so from East Asia, Southeast Asia, or did they come from South America? So really, there was starting to be more support for the East Asian uh, hypothesis, which you now know is, is a true story. But he was very much into this this other theory. And part of it was because people said, no, it's not possible. With that technology, they couldn't sail across the ocean, across the Pacific. And he wanted to prove that that was wrong. But he also had this idea, uh, he was very into legends and stories. He was very interested in Rapa Nui or Eastern Ireland as well, which he later on came to research. And he had spoken to people and learned about a Peruvian legend about someone called Contiki, who was this high priest, this mythical high priest. He was very interested in the theory that there was a, a sort of quite mysterious people of fair-haired, fair-skinned people in South America who had been, I think they had been eradicated and essentially disappeared apart from the Contiki, who sailed westwards from Peru. And he looked at some of the artworks, he looked at the statues of Maui on Easter Island and said, well, they've got all these links to South America, so I'm going to prove it. And that's what he did. And obviously, the fact that he managed that this mission was successful wasn't proof at all. But it was hugely entertaining to people, it was hugely popular. But the science behind it was really quite poor and actually had these really quite racist undertones. So were they lucky to hit islands in this expedition? I mean, could they have missed them and just gone on for thousands of miles was that quite an easy thing? Or did they steer towards the islands? They could steer a little bit, but they were essentially floating on the currents and following the winds. So it clearly wasn't impossible. And they had, I think, checked this and they knew that it was possible. Yes, they could have gotten lost. They had a radio, but it didn't always work. Mm. There were lots of sharks. I think part of why the book in the film did so well and was so successful was that it was quite 
extraordinary the actual experience of it this is literally nine logs tied together yes. it's in the museum now i used to go and see it as a child and just think how on earth would you do that to english people or british people of a certain age it's a very familiar story cat because when i was growing up it was all over blue peter which was the kind of main source of information about what was happening in the world for young people on bbc television millions of us watched it and i can remember being thrilled and excited by who we called thor heyerdahl and the contiki expedition i can remember it vividly even now and it was in one of the Blue Peter annuals so it was a very well followed story if you were watching Blue Peter. Yes it was that excitement and the the daringness and the sort of adventure behind it I think and also I mean at the time it's interesting because there was this huge big interest so this was 1947 when it first happened so you're coming out of the Second World War and people are bored with war and bored with misery and suddenly you have this adventure this extraordinary you know piece of bravery and slightly silly and stupid but the fact that they're doing this and you know this big mission there's a huge interest in Polynesia this idea of tiki pop and the sort of tiki culture that was also hugely popular at that time this South Seas adventurous so it's tying into all of that. Well, it's just really interesting you say that Kat because as I remember it on Blue Peter it was happening contemporaneously this was happening when we were watching it in the 1960s but actually you're saying this happened in fact 20 years earlier. So you might have heard some of his later ones. So that was the first one. He then did two other things. So in 1969 and 1970, he essentially tried again. He wanted to also prove that he could go across the Atlantic, that you could get from Africa to the Americas. So he started another expedition called the Ra, named after the Egyptian sun god, uh, using an Egyptian reed boat. And again, trying to get there with just sort of basic technology. The first of the Ra missions was a failure. They started in Morocco, managed to go about 6,000 kilometres before the boat took in water. They hadn't actually worked out precisely how to make these reed boats. And they had to be rescued by uh, some French sailors were a French yacht I think but the second one the year later the Ra 2 made it all the way to Barbados so again he, he managed to do this sort of extraordinary thing that was sort of building us his experience with Contiki. That's what I was remembering because I can remember the reed boat actually I remember the prow of the reed boat in the water and I must have conflated the story of the original Contiki with the story of the later effort. Yeah well I think they were sort of often presented as part of the same thing because he was really trying to prove the same theories and of course you know he could prove that it was possible yes that doesn't prove that it happened. So it's this pseudoscience behind it that's problematic. He also became really involved in archaeological projects because he was very interested in Rapa Nui and Easter Island and actually first started some excavations there in the 1950s trying to prove again how where those people came from, you know, who they were. This was continued later on in the 1980s with some other uh, Swedish archaeologists and actually a few years ago I was able to Take part in it myself as well. I did some research, uh, not plaque, Richard, but bones. So we're looking <laughs> at bones. So I think I know, but the problem is that there's this sort of pseudoscience. He was very picky, so he wasn't really an academic as such. And he liked to sort of pick the bits of evidence, used a lot of anecdotal evidence. So there's legend of the Peruvian you know, Contiki, this chieftain, which there's no proof for it. And he'd find sort of tiny little bits of evidence and go, yes, it's there, you know, it's there. You know, Where else would that legend have come from if there wasn't a sort of grain of truth in it? And it's sort of difficult to argue with a little bit. And of course it could, but it clearly wasn't quite true. But it's interesting to see how that story was so popular all over the world. You were saying that the original expedition, it was five Norwegians and a Swede. Was it a sort of resurrection of Viking myth as well? Was that what was appealing to the world? 
I think it must have been. And there's a book published, nothing to do with, with Heyerdahl, but using the analogy of the Vikings as the explorers and settlers of Polynesia. I think there's another thing here. I remember being all excited about this, and partly because it was 1969, and it was around the era of the moon landings. And so there was this huge public narrative about a tiny little craft in a huge unknown space with few people on you know, separated from death and disaster by only a flimsy craft, that maybe that played into it too, that there was a sort of version of that that was also happening with the expeditions by Reed Boat across the Atlantic. Absolutely. And I think in this sense of adventure, the fact, you know, he'd been, he comes from this tradition of Amundsen and all of these people, uh, the sort of Arctic explorers and Antarctic explorers. And that's very much how he was presented back home as well. So I think all of that together must have just made this perfect storm for someone like Heyerdahl to sort of fit into, really. Do you want to know my favourite fact about him as well? Which I yes. sort of missed until quite recently. Yes, please. So you'd think that some of this was a little bit wild, looking for these legendary Peruvian chiefs. He then goes on to search for, essentially, the descendants of Odin, actually. And uh, he tries to find them in Azerbaijan, of all places. Not necessarily the obvious place for the sort of origins of the Vikings and the Scandinavians. But he actually goes there and carries out excavations to try and prove this theory. And this all comes from one of the sagas. And it comes from uh, a saga called the Inglinger Saga, which was written down by Snorri in the 13th century. And the link here is that the gods, so these Viking gods, the Norse gods, called the Esir or the Osir, which you can see where he gets to the country. They've got the same route here. And um, there is, in that story, there is this narrative that they actually come from somewhere in the east and then they move northwards. And then essentially that leads to Odin's family and Odin's descendants being all the Vikings and uh, the people who come into mythology. So... Needless to say, he wasn't successful in those excavations. He didn't find anything. But the sort of person he was, he then just moved it a little bit. And he went, no, 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 I was just a bit too far south. And he kept on digging in other places. (laughs) And it all went a little bit wild from there, uh, unfortunately. But yeah, so that's my favourite, I think. It's an amazing achievement and not a particularly amazing man. Is that it? Yeah, so I think he was amazing in some ways. And I think this sort of capturing people's imagination, this, and you know, really, it was very brave and daring. I think. Did they have a backup? craft behind them no nothing absolutely nothing so it was literally just them on this raft terrifying i can't think anything more awful really no (laughs) i I love the idea of it but i'd I'd like it a lot more once i'd landed safely on the other side if you see what i mean (laughs) yes Yes. (laughs) definitely but there we go so that's my that's my herodal story and that leaves us with one more topic for today and charles you're going to be talking about a nice light one at the end to finish us off, and that's the Italian Mafia. Yes, well, I do want to reassure the listener, I'm not going to go into the gruesome bits for this because it is all really horrid. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I got into this subject, I was thinking, why why is the Italian Mafia so intriguing? I mean, you've got the Yakuza, the Triads, the Medellin cartel, all doing much the same, but somehow the Italian Mafia grabs our attention more. And I think it's to do with the notions that come through fiction and the bits we know about the mafia. We think of honour, we think of family loyalties or tradition. Also impunity, the impunity of taking on the state and the ruthlessness that's needed to pull this off. It's a sort of very heady cocktail of things that are intriguing to the human mind. I wanted to know really where the word mafia comes from and we're not 
totally sure it could be from a Sicilian word, mafiusu, is really a sort of swagger, a boldness, a sort of bravado. Or it could be a Sicilian Arabic slang, which goes to the translation, a protector against the arrogance of the powerful. And I think that is part of it. It is this sort of underdog, but attack dog mentality. Sicily, where where this all really kicks off, has been invaded and taken over by Romans, by Arabs, by Normans and by Spaniards. And really, I think the origins of the whole concept of the mafia, this sort of standalone organisation against the state and against supposed society, goes back to the idea of the feudal system and the fact that the people of Sicily didn't really have any rights. There was no representation of the people for centuries. Eventually, guilds built up, which were really to do with trade and also personnel. And these became a sort of informal centre of dispensing justice because there was no local or state authority that was listening to the needs of the people. And there have been all sorts of ways where this has had an extra burst of fuel to keep it going and to see the development of the mafia over the centuries. This idea that the Sicilian bandits were the people you looked to if you had a grudge against, say, your Spanish overlords, and theft and murder became commonplace as a retribution against these superior colonialists who were lording it over your people. And that's certainly where the concept of omerta comes from, which is the refusal to give evidence, which is still part of the mafia culture today. Under the feudal lords, there were people who were put in charge of taxation of the rented lands. They became the gabalotti. And then you had armed forces, the campieri, and then the bandits. And Essentially, this became the Sicilian way of doing things. And in fact, the Cosa Nostra, which is the Sicilian mafia, it's interpreted as our thing. It's just the way we do things. And that's where it was. And eventually in Sicily, the Lords sort of decided that an action had to be taken. The Gabalotti ordered the acts to take place, whether that was murder or theft, and the bandits carried it out. So you have this extraordinary structure that by the 1830s, the Neapolitan Minister of Justice was acknowledging that in the umbilical capital of Sicily, public office is on sale, justice is corrupt, and ignorance is encouraged. And that really has been in place for the last 200 years. In the 1860s, the unification of Italy started, but the Kingdom of Italy couldn't really control the island of Sicily, so they relied on the Mafia to help them, and this backfired because that's when the Mafia started to entrench itself into the Sicilian systems of justice, politics and economics. And then we have attempts to curb the Mafia. One of the great anti-Mafia heroes, and this is a really extraordinary thought, was Mussolini. Mussolini visited Sicily in 1924 and was outraged in a sort of Trumpian huff to be treated as a normal person rather than as a special guest. And he brought in a man called Cesare Mori as the prefect to eliminate the mafia in Sicily. But this backfired again. They arrested 11,000 people, many of them innocent, and many of the most dangerous mafiosi escaped to America. America had already had a huge infusion of southern Italians and Sicilians. We reckon about four million had emigrated to America between 1880 and 1924. And a lot of it was in relation to the poverty, the grinding poverty of the southern half of Italy. But essentially, you have these people emigrating and bad people staying in power because they were so useful. 
and the sort of philosophy, if there is one, of the mafia is seen in a, a script from about 1930 when one of the mafiosi leaders said, you have to skim the cream off the milk without breaking the bottle. And that is the concept of taking money through protecting businesses. You don't want to ever overburden a business because you have to keep them profitable. You have to make the business owner feel grateful to your protection while, frankly, you're taking everything out of his pocket. We have the really big moment for me, which was a surprise, was the role of the Mafia in World War II. Again, they were such a powerful outfit that people needed to rely on them. And when the US was looking as part of the Allied forces to invade Sicily, they had a, an Operation Underworld, it was called, which was working with mafiosi operating in New York. And they decided to work with people in prison even, there was a man called um, Lucky Luciano, who was the boss of the New York West Side, was imprisoned in a terrible prison for compulsory prostitution. And in return for his aid in the invasion of Sicily, he was moved to a much gentler prison and eventually was rewarded for his role in helping by being moved into exile in Italy, where life was much easier for him. And it's a public record fact that when the Allies actually invaded on the 9th of June, 1943, many Italians failed to report for duty because the Mafia had told them don't. In the music business in the 1980s, it was really the legitimization of Mafia business that played an important part in that. that as the sort of Mafia began to get richer and become more sort of industrialised, if I can put it that way, it made sense to legitimate their enterprise. So they got into legitimate business rather than illegitimate business. A lot of people thought that the music industry in the 1980s had a heritage of that kind, although obviously there was not something... There was a certain degree of omerta about that. But there was one company, record company in particular, I won't name it, which was notoriously thought to have had mafia input. Well, that's absolutely true. In fact, um, I suppose the most recent famous mafiosi is this man called Matteo Messina Denaro, who died in September this year. And he was a really thoroughly dangerous man. He used to boast that he had filled a cemetery all by himself uh, with the number of victims he was responsible for killing. This terrible thing where he kidnapped the 11-year-old son of somebody who was going to bear witness against him and kept him prisoner for two years, and then, I'm afraid, killed him. But this man was, he was worth 4 billion euros when he died. They looked into his business interests. He was a major stakeholder in one of the largest supermarket chains in Italy and had his own olive oil business. And people sort of semi-knew that he was involved. But yes, they moved into things that were much more legitimate. Of course, there's drugs, prostitution, all of that, but also muscling their way into public construction contracts and things that looked legitimate. But they're considered to be incredibly busy. And this man had business interests in Belgium, Germany, Venezuela, Colombia. These are places uh, with global reaches, these very strong mafiosi figures. I was talking to a, a police officer who's responsible for organised crime activity in a part of Britain, and she told me that they, they're they so organised they have a helpline now for the IT, and that if you are trying to convert your ill-gotten gains into crypto <laughs> and you have a problem... With your Mac or something, you can literally phone up a 24-hour helpline and people will be there to assist you with your nefarious enterprise. That's one side of it, and that's absolutely true. But then they still use very basic methods of communication too. With Denaro, he was 
on the top of the list of most wanted people in the world for a very long time, in the top 10 for a long time. But he used really old-fashioned methods of communication with Pizzini, which is little bits of paper that were used with a messenger, maybe have a code involved, but handheld messages going around his part of Italy because that's how he liked to do things. And the reason they couldn't find him is there were actually no photographs of him since the 1990s. Even when the police used scientists to have a a look at what he must look like now. They just didn't find him. And if he hadn't been going for serious treatment in a hospital, he would probably never have been found. And also, they reckon his branch of the mafia had perhaps 60,000 foot soldiers if you top them all up. It's an extraordinarily large outfit of people doing a lot of wrong. But there's many more than just the Sicilian mafia. We have the Calabrian mafia and It's interesting with the role of women, I find quite interesting in this, because in the Sicilian Mafia, the Cosa Nostra, the women are not really involved at all. They're kept out of business. They're venerated as mothers and for maintaining the family unit. But with the Camorra and the Apulian Mafia, women could have high rank. So there was a sort of societal view of how women fitted into things or didn't. In fact, we also know from the Cosa Nostra in very recently, 2007, that the head man there, Salvatore Lo Piccolo, he wrote down what he considered to be the Ten Commandments of being in the Cosa Nostra. And these involve things such as never being seen with the police, never going to pubs or clubs, ignoring in all ways the wives and lovers of your fellow Cosa Nostra, and to always be available even if your wife is giving birth. That was an extraordinary one that jumped out of me. And meanwhile, wives must be treated with respect. And another one for me, because I do like to be on time, appointments must always be respected. Can I just go back to something you said right at the beginning, this idea that the Italian mafia is so kind of romanticised almost. Do you think it's also something to do with the fact that it's Italy, this sort of country and nation and culture that we have in such high esteem in other ways, going back to Romans and all of that. And then you have something so dark in contrast to all those very positive aspects. Do you think that could have something to do with it? I think so. I mean, I think that gives a sort of Mediterranean glamour to it. And in fact, my favourite fact is going to be the extraordinary effect of the mafia story on popular culture. I mean, if you look at television, The Sopranos, which ran from 1999 to 2007, is called the greatest TV show of all time by Rolling Stone. Last year, Rolling Stone magazine voted it the best, beating The Simpsons, Breaking Bad, The Wire and Fleabag. I'm a huge fan of that show, The Sopranos, and it is dealing with the complex moral issues of Tony Soprano padding around like Yogi Bear, but a psychotic Yogi Bear. That's intriguing. And obviously the acting is of the highest possible calibre, James Gandolfini and Edie Falco. But it is something extraordinary about, you know, people living a life of a family life and then organising how they're going to butcher their rivals in underworld business. There's also an interesting thing, Charles, that there was a sort of historic, almost mythological element too, where you think of, there's a lovely scene in which Livia, who is Tony's mother, who's involved in a plot to kill her own son, which sounds like something from medieval history, she doesn't have much mobility and she has a chairlift and there's a scene where she descends in her chairlift to talk to Tony and it really is like some evil goddess coming down to earth to curse her own pharaoh. There's something elemental about it. 
Yeah, she's astonishing as a character, and yes, one of the most memorable. But equally, you know, the popularity of the Mafia Tales is seen in The Godfather, both the book. You know, it was a New York Times bestseller for 67 weeks, sold over 9 million copies in the first two years. And Paramount Pictures were very lucky because they picked it up before it became popular for $80,000. But when the film was released, it became the highest grossing film of all time for that time. One best picture, best actor, best adapted screenplay. And it's been voted by the American Film Institute the second greatest film of all time after Citizen Kane. And look, the drama's fantastic, the acting's fantastic, but it is something about the mafia that is culturally, socially and naughtily, I'd suggest, intriguing to us. You know, if we drill down into what they're doing, it's appalling. But somehow they appeal to us as a sort of vehicle for great storytelling. And also, they cock a snook at power and authority, don't they? Remind us that power and authority has a certain arbitrariness about it, doesn't it? Yes, their alternative route to power. But, I mean, it's a very dark force, but you're right. It's sort of Robin Hood gone wrong. Good way of explaining it. You did very well in not going too gruesome there. I went very light. (laughs) Sorry about the 11-year-old boy. (laughs) Brilliant. That's really interesting. Thank you. And that's going to leave us to our favourite part. We're going to get the results of today's, not competition, but just, you know. (laughs) (laughs) How did we do this week, Disembodied Voice? Yes, very good. And I don't want anyone to think I've been persuaded, had my arm twisted about the outcome of this week's win. But regardless, it is going to be Charles this week. There you are. You you can walk home safely today. Disembodied voice, it's fine. (laughs) Do disembodied voices walk? (laughs) (laughs) Float. Yes. (laughs) So finally, we have to share our topics for next week. Mm. And next week, I am going to be going with one of our listener suggestions, which was to hear all about the Greenland Norse. Charles, I'm really looking forward to this one. Monarch nicknames. Fantastic. I know a few which will... Well, uh, we'll see how we do. (laughs) Excellent. And Richard, Typhoid Mary. Yeah. That's not a nickname you particularly want, is it? (laughs) No, it's not a good one. (laughs) Speaking of nicknames, yes. I'd rather butter penis. (laughs) Yes. I'll see if I can find any more Greenlandic ones for you. Oh, I've got one. I've got a good one. I'll I'll save that for next time. (laughs) Brilliant. So that's it for this week. Thank you to everyone out there as always for listening to us do please subscribe if you haven't already just press that button in your app and leave us a review do send us an email if you'd like especially if you'd like to suggest another topic for us to fall down rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com you can find us in the Daily Telegraph every Wednesday in our Rabbit Hole Detectives column discussing our favourite facts from the show so in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice I suppose I ought to eat or drink something but the great question is what? Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.